Good evening. We're ready to start almost on time. Uh, welcome, everybody, for coming. Uh, surprisingly, a packed house. Um, I know Iraq was in the news for the past few years, but one would have thought that now that ISIS is over, nobody really is focusing on Iraq. So it's good to see that uh, the LSE can still bring together those who are working on Iraq, um, because as we'll see, post we'll see what post-conflict actually means. My name is Renad Mansour. I'm a research fellow at Chatham House also an, a visiting fellow with the AUIS, American University of Iraq, which is one of the partners of, of this project. So I'm very happy to be here today to chair this panel of uh, a dream team on uh, Iraq, particularly conflict on Iraq. Um, first, we have with us Zainab, Zainab Kaya, who's a research fellow here at the LSE Middle East Center uh, and the LSE Center for Women, Peace and Security. Not anymore, I've just told. <laughs> this, this should be updated, please. I, I hope, I hope, just Middle East Center. Better, no. She's also a lecturer, are you still a lecturer at Pembroke King's? She's also a lecturer at the Pembroke King's program at the University of Cambridge. Zainab's research focuses on displacement, gender conflict, and the implementation of WPS agenda in Iraq. Next to, uh, to her left, we have Professor Toby Dodge, who probably is no stranger to many of you. He's the Kuwait Program Director um, at the IR Department here at the LSE, and he uh, serves as the Iraq Research Director um, on the, this program, the Conflict Research uh, Program, which I'll get into. And finally, to his left, we have Jessica Watkins, who's a research officer at the Middle East Center, currently working on a DFID-funded project looking at regional drivers of conflict and Arab media. So the way it's going to work uh, this evening is each speaker will have 10 minutes to present uh, their, their part of the study. Uh, I hope all of you have the report. And for the sort of nerds out there, have already read it twice or three times since it was, came out yesterday. Um, and after the 10 minutes, I'll add a sort of 10-minute uh, summary, and then we'll open it up to uh, Q&A. Just a bit of background. Why, you know, first of all, this, this sort of the conflict research program that the LSE is running is a three-year program funded by the UK's Department of International Development, GIFID. Um, and, and the main idea is to address the drivers and dynamics of violent conflict in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and to inform the measures being used to tackle armed conflict and its impacts. So today, this report in front of you is about primarily about Iraq and how that same methodology that they're looking to implement throughout the Middle East, North Africa, Asia, and elsewhere, how that has been applied to Iraq. And so you'll see many of the tools that they're using um, in the context of Iraq, particularly in the last few years, but also seeing that the structural problems. And some things to kind of consider, I think, as, as we hear uh, the three interventions is, what does post-conflict actually mean? Um, what is a military solution enough? How, how often in Iraq have we had military solutions and yet these fundamental drivers of conflict have never been addressed? And linked to that, how do you even address these fundamental drivers of conflict? It's easy to bomb you know, cities. It's easy, to, it's easy to fight a few thousand Salafi jihadi fighters. But how do you actually address the drivers and the roots of conflict? And that's what this report is beginning to sort of bring out in a conversation. So to that, to that end, I'll open it up to uh, Jess. You want, are you starting? Yeah, yeah please. Sure. 10 minutes. I've been asked that I've, I'm usually a, a lazy chair, so I'm going to be very strict. OK. OK, thank you very much. Um, so in the conflict research program, we're thinking primarily about domestic conflict drivers in Iraq. But of course, Iraq is embedded into a region in crisis and it doesn't make much sense to speak about Iraq uh, in isolation from the broader Middle East. 
So it falls to me to uh, speak about some of the regional drivers of conflict in the Middle East and specifically Iraq. And since that's quite a tall order in 10 minutes, I'm going to focus on a particular aspect or one particular driver, an ideational driver of conflict, which is um, the transnational promotion of identity politics and specifically the um, aggressive sectarian politics. And to reflect briefly on what, if anything, can be can and should be done to counter them. So there's no question that sectarian violence has underscored the conflict in Iraq since at least 2005. It's also become an integral part of the Syrian conflict and the uprising in Bahrain post-2011 and a peripheral driver of the conflict in Yemen. Societal cleavages uh, along sectarian lines wouldn't be possible without domestic drivers. But regional players have played pivotal roles in funding and in some cases training militant Sunni and Shia sectarian groups. Uh, they've also manipulated or allowed rel religious scholars and ideologues as well as traditional and social media to incite uh, violence along sectarian lines or at very least to securitize sect. Right now it looks like sectarian violence is receding in the region and with it the transnational uh, rhetoric that's been driving it. Certainly when compared with the, the high point or the low point of 2013-2014. Unfortunately, in my view, that's not really because there's been any fundamental improvement in relations um, amongst divided communities. The states emerging from conflict in Syria and Iraq are more divided along sectarian lines than ever, which makes prospects for reconciliation extremely difficult. Rather, it's more of a comment on the realities on the ground. In Iraq, the army, with the backing of Shia militias, finally ejected Daesh, or ISIL, uh, last summer, and the Sunni appetite for militant uh, solutions to marginalization appears to be currently exhausted. In Syria, Turkey and the Gulf states have long since abandoned visible backing for Sunni jihadist rebel groups, and Russia has been putting pressure on Hezbollah and Iranian-backed militias to withdraw or to become less visible. At the same time, the diplomatic rift uh, between Qatar and uh, Saudi and its allies has divided the Sunni front and created a new rhetorical battle communicated through the uh, Arab satellite news channels. Instead of focusing energies against Iranian-backed Shia militias, the Qatari mainstream media is attacking what it presents as uh, the hypocrisy of the Saudi monarchy's authoritarian brand of Wahhabism, um, whilst the Saudi media is maintaining an onslaught against Iran, but also attacking Qatar's continued sympathies and sponsorship of terrorist groups, by which it primarily means the Muslim Brotherhood. So the easing off of sectarian violence does, in principle, create space for promoting alternative discourses in the regional sphere. But so far, new political developments have not fundamentally changed the conditions that underlie the promotion of identity politics in the region. And if we think about um, identity politics as using particular trait of ethnicity or class or religion to mobilize constituencies, then that's a common feature of domestic uh, political systems across the Middle East, largely because authoritarian systems of government provide little space for issue-based politics. And to be clear, identity politics can, in certain circumstances, be used as a productive source of collective action. But because the state borders in the Middle East cut across <coughs> supra-state ethnic, linguistic, and religious identities, um, political actors have to a much greater extent than elsewhere been able to use identity politics transnationally. At different moments, pan-Arabism, pan-Islamism, 
Even Kurdish nationalism and laterally sectarianism have been invoked to appeal to populations in other states in direct bids to undermine state sovereignty. They've been equally used to alienate designated non-Arab, non-Muslim, or non-Sunni Shia enemies, as the case may be. Over the past century, these enemies have by turn included the Ottoman Empire, the British and French colonial powers, the Zionist movement and later Israel, domestic ruling elites, and foreign infidel invaders. Over the past few decades, the nature of the external intervening military forces in Iraq, Syria, Bahrain, and Yemen has fostered progressively more divisive forms of transnational identity politics. And overall, there's been a move away from the pan-Arabism and uh, more tolerant forms of pan-Islamism towards radical, exclusivist, Salafi jihadist models of the Islamic Caliphate and the incitement of sectarian violence. So following the US invasion of Iraq, the US media led, in fairness, by Al Jazeera, promoted a pan-Arab, pan-Islamist, and ultimately anti-Western narrative, which was easily done while coalition forces were active across Iraq. Uh, but the initial anti-occupation violence perpetrated by Iranian-sponsored Shia militias and uh, Sunni Salafi jihadist groups alike morphed into civil sectarian strife premised on sectarian <coughs> identities. After the U.S. withdrawal in 2011, it became much harder to vilify the U.S. and easier to vilify adherence to opposing sects. In Syria, where there was no initial Western military involvement, the pro-revolution Arab media initially attempted to cast the uprising in pro-democracy terms, but the Assad regime were recourse to selective incidents recast the uprising as jihadi terrorism. And indeed, as is well now, now well known, jihadist groups did assume increasingly prominent roles in the rebel faction forces. Um, the arrival of Hezbollah in 2013 consolidated the narrative of sectarian warfare. So the transnational promotion of sectarian rhetoric has never fully eclipsed other forms of identity politics in Iraq or elsewhere. Um, Post-2003, regional issues that have fed into the conflict in Iraq have thrived on different brands of identity politics, including hostility between the Iranian and Saudi regimes, um, including uh, the growth of the Salafi jihadist movement across the region, the struggle for Kurdish nationalism that connects activism in Iraq with Syria, Iran, and Turkey, um, and even the uh, connections or the links between tribes that have been involved in the uh, smuggling networks and fighting on both sides of the, the border in Syria and Iraq. Uh, in this late light, we can see identity politics as simultaneously the glue that sticks the region together and paradoxically pulls it apart in renewed cycles of violence turning it into what I call a regional insecurity complex. Identity politics has become a destructive logic to which a series of political actors adhere, and the only prospect of escaping this complex is to step away from this type of populist mobilization. Easier said than done. So having attempted to disconnect Middle East regional politics from the broader international community, um, it's only fair to recall in case there is any risk of ever forgetting that we can't tell the story of Iraq post-2003 without giving the US a leading role in it and the, U the UK at least a supporting role. And since we're now trying to fix what we've helped to break, albeit uh, from a position of reduced influence, I should say a few words about what, from an interventionist perspective, we can or should do about reducing regional recourse to aggressive strains of identity politics. And I have three points. Um, in one minute, okay? So the first is that actually while it's, been, uh, it's become commonplace to say that transnationally sponsored 
sectarian rhetoric has fueled the conflicts in Iraq elsewhere, there still isn't much in the way of methodical analysis of the media and the methods by which this is being done. So it won't surprise you that from an academic perspective, I'm gonna say that we need much more rigorous investigation of the production as well as the consumption of sectarian rhetoric in order to be best, better positioned to counter it. The second point is that, of course, material capabilities do matter. And in the long term, identity politics in the region has been sustained by funding, a large amount of which is derived from oil and gas revenues. I think we need to be quite cautious about assuming causal relationships between identity politics, oil wealth and conflict, um, whilst recognizing that uh, internally generated oil wealth has also become a core component of funding post-conflict reconstruction programs. Um, but we certainly need to give this relationship much more thought. And the final point, point is that we need to recognize that ruling elites use aggressive identity politics in the regional sphere to counter what they perceive as ideational threats in the domestic sphere and to distract domestic attention from their own lack of legitimacy. So Saudi's alternate backing of both secular, secular and sectarian narratives in the region can largely be seen as an attempt to counter the ideational threat it perceives um, uh, to its own legitimacy from the Muslim Brotherhood. Seen in this light, the fundamental step to reducing the state-backed use of transnational identity politics remains the improvement of domestic legitimacy and efficacy of governments in the region. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jessica. Very interesting uh, points being made. One, Iraq is a playground for a much wider regional conflict. I know many Iraqis are becoming increasingly fed up with, with, with that state of affairs, as you can see. Um, but also this issue versus identity-based politics and what happens when you have violence, extreme violence, what happens when violence dissipates. So, you know, we'll get into that with the Q&A, but very good. Um, before we get to Professor Toby, I kind of forgot to mention two things. One, thank God none of your phones have rang yet, but please can you put your phones on silent? Um, and two, please do tweet. This is not under the Chatham House rules, so please do tweet at hashtag LSE Iraq. Um, all the wisdom that, that you've already heard and will hear moving forward. Toby. Right, thank you. Well, let me add to Renad's uh, thanks to everyone for coming out on what's a, a surprisingly cold night. And it's lovely to see so many old friends in the audience, and Renad as well being one of my old uh, Iraqi friends or friends working on Iraq. And uh, he's recently started to accuse me of, of pessimism in our frequently exchanged tweets and emails, so I thought I'd start with the good news. Um, of course, there's been a lot of good news. It's about a year. Uh, Mosul was liberated from uh, the Islamic State by Iraqi government forces in July 2017. The horrors that were predicted as the Hashtashabi and Iraqi forces moved up into uh, at the areas that had been dominated by the Islamic State didn't largely happen. We're now in an Iraq that's uh, got comparatively, comparatively low levels of violence. Anyone that has been to Baghdad recently visits a city, I've been going since the early 2000s, but visits a, a city that's, I think it's most upbeat and positive. The elections took part on the 12th of May, um, and then, and that, though it has Renard's own uh, publication for us, I do believe, uh, pointed out the, the, the leading coalitions presented their policy plans to move the country to political reform, stimulating the economy and jobs, and there was a notable lack of identitarian, sectarian rhetoric. So I think this is a, a potentially good news story that may or may not justify Renad's stressing of a state emerging from conflict. However, Renad's own report, I think, notes uh, quite powerfully. This was about your report. It, is, no, it, was, it notes very powerfully that the, electoral, that the electoral turnout was only 44.5%. 
as low as 40% in the Kurdish regional government, which is a massive drop-off considering those whacking 70% turnouts. And, Renato reassures me, 14%, as low as 14% down in Basra. So I think this is the first indication that the fifth national election since regime change were largely shaped by a popular discontent against the ruling elite that's been in place since 2003. And indeed, the one with the most seats, uh, the uh, Sadr Sarun uh, coalition, got 54 seats and ran on a, a broadly, I paraphrase Sadr, let's kick the bums out platform uh, of, of elections. Then Hadi al-Amri, that broadly represents the, the Hashishabi, the militias, got 47 uh, seats. And then the incumbent, uh, Haider Abadi, uh, the, the victor, if you want, the man responsible for liberating Mosul, came a disappointing third. So there, there are those, the elections already highlight a problem. Then, after uh, four months of those elongated negotiations, which I'll get back to uh, in a minute, there was a breakthrough on the 15th of September when Halblusi was uh, picked as speaker. Then, two weeks later, on the 2nd of October, Baham Saleh was elected president by the Council of Representatives, and within two hours, remarkable two hours, had chosen Adel Abdel Mahdi as his designate prime minister. Then six days ago, last week, Adel Abdelmahdi managed to get 14 of a possible 22 cabinet members voted on by Parliament, with eight rejected by the Council of, uh, Council of Representatives because they didn't meet the, uh, the criteria set by uh, Grand Atala uh, Sistani of being politically independent or professionally competent. Now, the selection of these two gentlemen veterans, we can call them. Saleh is 58 and Abdul Mahdi is 76, long involved in post-regime politics. And 14 of the 22-person cabinet was greeted with a wave of optimism uh, by news coverage. Now, the cabinet, as we see it, I think is a strange mix of technocrats and another set of veteran politicians, or at least their relatives, um, who've been brought in in this kind of hybrid. Sarun and Sada stepped out, said he didn't want any cabinet ministers from his own coalition, that he'd give the government a year, but not everyone else was so muscular. So I think if I look at this election and the coverage, the reportage around it, it brings back a kind of uneasy sense of deja vu. Because if you remember, in the election, or the, the government formation after the elections of December 2005, government formed in 2006, who'd have thought it but that great politician Nouri al-Maliki, as he came to power, was celebrated as a new broom, a wind of change taking over from Ibrahim al-Jafri. And then when Haider Abadi took over in 2014 in the aftermath of uh, the fall of Mosul, he was celebrated with some more veracity for taking over from Nouri al-Maliki as a broom of change. Now, I think what was wrong in 2006, 2014, and today is that there's a lot of emphasis on two individuals that somehow can overcome the structural constraints that have made Iraqi politics so violent, so corrupt, and the Iraqi population alienated from their leaders. So I think this is certainly a window of opportunity. The organized violence of the Islamic State has been broken. But it's a window of opportunity that leaves two big problems sitting on the table that need to be sorted out. And we in this report and the much broader uh, conflict research programs uh, kind of global thing have labeled them the political marketplace 
and moral populism. Now, as Jess was saying, moral populism in Iraq is basically political mobilization and uh, rhetoric based on ethno-sectarian division, the reification and division of people along their ethnic or religious grounds. Now, this, I would argue, was cemented at the center of the political dispensation after 2003, the Mahasa system, the sectarian apportionment system that formed the Iraqi governing council and after all of these major elections went to form the cabinets, divided the resources of the government and the government, its ministries, between these parties as reward for them mobilizing their constituencies along moral populist or ethno-sectarian lines. And I think this has had a huge issue that if we use an old Althusserian term, that if you're being interpolated, if you're being heralded or referenced by the state purely in ethno-sectarian terms and the state remains the main employer, then you're going to find it very difficult to resist, initially at least, the siren calls to get a job. To, to get access to state resources, that you need to go down the moral populist line um, and at least look at um, the, uh, the state and your own citizenship in terms of that divisive rhetoric. Now, there is an argument that we'll get to in Q&A about whether the post-2018 government, the government that's forming as we speak, with more ministers being brought up in a few days' time, is post-Mahasasa, post-sectarian apportionment. I would argue very much, I don't think it's too early to tell, but I doubt it, and Fouad Hussain, uh, uh, Masoud Barzani's former chief of staff of Minister of Finance, a man not qualified, I suspect, to be Minister of Finance, would be indicative of that, and I think the names that we've looked at for interior and defence and that have been rejected may well um, may well cementing the Mahasasa system. But also I would argue it's still Mahasasa because of the dominance of what we call the political marketplace. Now the political marketplace is just a posh word for neo-patrimonialism. It's the using of state resources to buy loyalty of political uh, constituencies. Now in Iraq this is intimately linked to and disguised by the Mahasasa system and it works in three ways. Firstly, as I mentioned before, the dominant parties that have the ministries then employ their friends, relatives occasionally, faction members and followers on the payroll, thus giving financial reward for loyalty. Secondly, government contracts notoriously are struck with business people close to the ruling elites. And those contracts are very often not actioned, not acted upon, but the money goes in and the, those business people uh, then pay off the, uh, the, the leadership um, that have made sure they secure those contracts. And finally, um, money is simply stolen from ministerial budgets, and we've seen the scandals that have surrounded the Ministry of Defence, Ministry of Oil, Ministry of Electricity, and Ministry of Trade. So against that background, those two dominant structures, Mahasasa, uh, the political marketplace, uh, and uh, moral populism uh, dominate. But I will now refer once more in my last two minutes to Renad's work, to Renad's work on what we would call civicness, political mobilisation, not along ethno-sectarian lines, that seeks to push uh, a, a, a more equal, less divided citizenship forward. And it is the demonstrations in the summer 
of 2015. And again, in this summer uh, that started in Basra, but in 2015, swept up to Baghdad. And what were those demonstrators, by their very nature, largely Shia young people calling for? They were calling for a civic state, and they were chanting, the people have been robbed in the name of religion. And I would point to that, and Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani's response to that, and indeed Sada's response to that, as a point of optimism, a point of, of, of moving forward where the mass majority of the population are putting massive pressure on the ruling elite and saying, enough is enough. We can't continue to live with the dominance of Mahasa moral populism in the political marketplace. Thank you. Thank you, Toby, for that optimistic outlook. As, as you can all see, Iraq is clearly post-conflict and uh, <laughs> moving on a positive trajectory. I'm sure we'll get into it in the Q&A. Uh, but before that, Zainab, uh, please. Floor is yours. I'm afraid my presentation will not be very optimistic either. Um, <laughs> I, have, I, will, I will end with some optimistic remarks. So what I will focus is uh, gender norms uh, and patriarchy as drivers of conflict in Iraq. And, uh, and what I mean with this, I, I will explain. And what I will try to do is to offer a different way of thinking, a thinking we are quite familiar with, but we don't really think about how we can turn it into action. In just in to give you a very brief overview of the situation of women in Iraq, um, um, you know, as we have already discussed, and as you probably all know, Iraq has been a long-term context of conflict, uh, and there are, you know, there are many, many of them, the Iran-Iran war in the 1980s, the conflict between uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga and Iraqi regime forces, this conflict between the Kurdish groups in the 1990s, Ba'ath regime's attacks on, on the Kurds and the Shias, ethnic genocide, displacement, the Gulf War and its aftermath, international sanctions, the intervention in 2003, sectarian conflict, rise of Islamist fundamentalism. These are like, it's a mouthful, but it all happened in one country and not in a very short, in a long period of time. It's a scary picture we are looking at. Um, you know, I, I will add other things like, you know, bad management of services, um, sectarianization, um, inequality and poverty for large sections of the society, identity-based discrimination and increase in this, in this type of discriminations, internal and external displacement. Um, so 35 years of internal and, internal and uh, especially internal displacement is a massive issue. I will go back to that during my talk. Um, so this picture we are looking at is full of challenging issues. So when we talk about post-conflict in Iraq, we have to think about what happened beforehand and not, I can't be optimistic looking at this picture about post-conflict Iraq. But I will focus on the women. So this conflict affecting all of the society, all of the communities in Iraq. Imagine this having had disproportionate impact on women and girls. Um, because Iraq is a patriarchal society uh, where gender norms are quite rigid, um, allocating specific roles to women and men, and women already facing high levels of exposure to domestic and other forms of gender-based violence, discrimination and legal, political, institutional, socioeconomic uh, contexts in terms of access to education. Um, and these structures of gendered inequalities, I call, uh, which is the outcome of political marketplace structures, public authority, and moral populism, the concepts that we are looking at in this, in this, in this uh, project, in this research project. 
uh, are all very much gendered processes. Gender is integral to these processes and shape how these processes actually take place and impl impact, impact people and, and communities and societies. So these structures of gender inequalities already in place <coughs> exacerbate during conflict and, and during political instability, during economic crisis, rendering women and girls even more vulnerable. Um, increased conservatism, scarcity of jobs, conflict and insecurity. I can give you a lot of examples that led women to give up their jobs, confined into the private sphere, made them more vulnerable to all different forms of violence um, in conflict and outside conflict, trafficking, abduction, so on and so forth. So there is an optimistic side to this, though. There is a long-term, strong and resilient women's rights activism in Iraq, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, mainly led by the uh, women in Baghdad, and then moving on to the political structures uh, of the political parties, uh, gradually further developing independently in the, Kurdish, uh, in the Kurdish region as well. And especially after 2000, the civil society organizations focusing on women's issues proliferated. In, their numbers have increased. They received international funding to carry out their work. And they have made real impact on women's lives in Iraq um, through their advocacy, through their push for legal reform, uh, for women's empowerment, for their access to education and employment, and also offering women um, spaces, uh, shelters uh, for women who experienced violence and, and trauma, providing them psychological support. And these are key key processes that have that have been um, uh, very positive developments and have made an impact on people's lives. Also, introduction of the. Uh, quota system in the Iraqi parliament and Kurdish parliament, including women in the political processes, have been positive. Iraq is the first country that launched a national action plan to implement, first country in the Middle East to launch a national action plan to implement the women, peace, and security agenda, changes in the personal status quo, status law, penal code, slightly better, more changes in the Kurdish uh, system than, than the rest of the Iraq. But, Despite these developments and despite all this work and funding going into improving women's situation, empowering them, providing them protection, the progress has been limited. And in several areas, the situation is actually worse compared to, for instance, before 2003. And this is for several reasons. Increased conflict, sectorianization is one reason. Legal changes are not implemented properly. They are not supported through funding or, or budgeting. Programs and action plans are not properly developed that doesn't address the specific needs of the people, so on and so forth. We know, we know all this, and everyone who's working on these issues trying to overcome these obstacles and develop better, better programs. But I think the main underlying reason, which we all know, but we don't really mention or challenge, is the uh, patriarchal norms in in social, economic, and political life, in political marketplace, public authorities, and in moral populism. Um, these are, the, these are how, how they obstruct implementation of these reforms and, uh, and their further development. This is the case in all, all over the world. Iraq is no exception to this. But why is patriarchy is resilient? Why, why uh, even you know, when we look at other parts of the world, um, Progress has generally been slow, and we always think that gender norms take time to change. 
societies take longer time to change, and et cetera, et cetera. Cynthia Enlow, in her recent book, explains why patriarchy is so resilient. It transforms, it adapts, uh, it continues to exist in different forms, um, in, in ways that we don't even foresee. So the focus on women and girls, all the funding, all the work, are essential, necessary, and that should continue. But it's not, it's very limited. It's a small picture of what's actually going on. It's, if you look at this, if the one coin and one side is empowering women and addressing their issues, the other side of the coin is patriarchy. And this other side of the coin is actually eating the other side up. All the work that's going on is being obstructed by the wider problem of patriarchy, hypermasculinity, toxic masculinity that exacerbates during conflict even more. So, and I haven't seen many examples of uh, policy programs, action plans, funding plans going to tackle patriarchy, hypermasculinity, patriarchal masculinity directly. There's always focus on women. If we empower women, then the society will change. If we make them more resilient, the society will change. So there is a problem with this theory of change. So you can't put all the responsibility for change on women or just through changing women that you can expect to change the society. You have a holistic, you have to adopt a holistic understanding of the situation. Society is a complex phenomenon. It's not only made of, of individuals and communities. It's also made of institutions, legal structures, historical practices, uh, perceptions, community relations economic structures, political marketplace, all that, you have to take that into account. And all that actually is in a complex intersection with gender, religion, and other forms of identity. So without understanding this, how are you going to empower women and through, them, through that change society, society won't change. And this is why I think in Iraq we haven't seen progress. Um, that's the main message. One minute, my goodness, okay. I'll skip a couple of things. So. What I want to say, um, so Iraq is full of problems, and two of the things that I have focused on in the last couple of years is um, violence against women and, and displacement. Displacement being a very long-term issue in Iraq, complex, multi-layered, long-term. Uh, and it affects women disproportionately. It makes women more vulnerable to all sorts of violence, trafficking, and et cetera, but also affects their living standards, livelihoods, expectations, everything in, in very disproportionate. It affects the whole community and women. So despite that, you don't really see uh, uh, programs addressing women that take into account the displacement's long-term implications. The focus is all mostly on humanitarian dimensions. So the balance between humanitarian and developmental work is, is gone, uh, which is problematic because when you address gender and when you talk about transforming gender norms, you have to think long-term. And displacement is a long-term issue. A global average for internal displaced people, global, years of displacement globally is 25 years in average. So this, this is a, that's a huge time. So that's one of the things that um, I think displacement in Iraq particularly is having this disproportionate impacts and severely affecting women and girls. The other example is ISIS's violence against the Yazidis. Um, because of the nature of the ISIS as an organization, it's usually treated as a unique case, uh, as an unusual case, whereas ISIS's practices and uh, the violence against women in that context and that the community as a minority group has uh, similar examples in the history of, the, of, of Iraq. Okay. 
thought I, I was trying, I was, I'm going to, it's not an isolated issue. The ISIS's conflict is embedded in the outcome of the wider structures, of gendered structures, gendered structures of inequality uh, and patriarchy and masculinity. And if we don't address, address those things in the long term, if you look at the, the pessimistic view and post-conflict Iraq may not be as, as, as you know, peaceful or hopefully peaceful, but if, if things go wrong and if there's a crisis happening, we will see such incidents again, happening again and again. Um, so we need to change our thinking and uh, framework, and I'll stop. I'm sorry. No, he, 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 he went over his time as well, right? No, yeah, no. <laughs> he more I didn't my time. It must be an LSE thing. I don't know. Um, so thank you, Zainab. Very important um, issues. I mean, just recently, having been in Iraq, we've seen an increase in violence against women, particularly prominent women activists in Basra and Baghdad. Um, female beauty uh, people as well have, have been killed recently in Iraq. And also, if you look at the new uh, cabinet, so far, it's the lowest ever number of women. There was one, and she was rejected. So, so, and she, because she was a sister of one of the uh, Sheikh Rayan's sister. Um, so, in any case, I mean, this is sort of the, the, the move away from ISIS and, and somehow attempting to move post-conflict and yet not including, you know, almost half, if not more than half your society in the process is a huge problem moving forward. Um, I've been asked to kind of just comment a bit, and I wasn't going to spend a lot on it, but since Toby has uh, <laughs> invited a few comments uh, from me and I don't have a lawyer present, I'm going to have to do it all myself. Um, and I'm the timekeeper, so I can speak as long as I want, it seems. Okay. I think you've just handed the chair to me. <laughs> <laughs> the, first, the first kind of theme that comes out of this paper, and I think it's important, hopefully in the Q&A it could be reflected, is how ideological is conflict? You know, we always talk about the idea of ISIS and combating ISIS through Salafi jihadism. But oftentimes, for you know, many of you who have been on the ground and you've spoken to fighters and you've spoken to people who join these movements, I mean, they might say ideological reasons. I remember in 2014 when I went to, when I went to the south of Iraq and I looked at, I met all the different you know, fighters joining the Hashid. Okay, some of them were saying ideological, but increasingly over the years, those ideas went away and it became different drivers of conflict. If you look at the way that Daesh or any group in northern Iraq operates, there is another fundamental underlying sort of, there's an underlying layer of that, which is economic. And I think that's part of what this report brings out. So the good thing about this report is you don't, you kind of bring up these four things. Now the question becomes which become, takes prominence over the other and at what point? So there's been, there's been, so when violence is high as a variable, how does that affect these four uh, layers? When violence is low, like today in Baghdad or, you know, or Slemania, for example, how does that affect these four variables that you've listed? So I think these are interesting questions to move into. Um, on, and, and on the point of political marketplace, I think you've done a really good job in highlighting the kind of backroom deals and the sharing, the muhasasa, you know, Sunnis get this much, Shi'i get this much, Kurds get this much, and it's all about making money. But there's a whole other political marketplace at the local level, right? There are a lot of deals being done between different groups, but look at areas like Tuz Khormatu or other areas that you'd never heard of, but for some reason, they have been prone to conflict over and over again. Why? Because they're either a transit point, or they're a borderland, or they're a major marketplace, a major city, or they happen to have a resource, Beji or Basra 
right? So there are, there are different reasons as to how the political marketplace goes on. And I mean, some of the work that we're hoping to do as well is kind of looking at the war economy more general. Because, I mean, since the 1990s, as, as, as many of us know, these smuggling routes and these uh, economic actors have been running business, right? So this is another theme that comes out. Where you see chaos on the ground, it's business as usual, right? And that's something interesting. Everyday life goes on. And that's both the political sense, right, the chaotic parliament, right, but also at the local levels in many of these regions where people are thought, wow, the Islamic State took over Mosul, that's it, right? Whereas what we've seen is actually those underlying, that underlying layer continues. And, and so perhaps we should question what we mean when we talk about chaos. Now, I have to address some of the uh, so-called positivism that, that I've, uh, I've uh, supposedly written about. Positivity. Positivity. Um, so I think there are a few changing dynamics in Iraq that are worth mentioning. Now, that's not to say that, you know, I have a short-term memory and that obviously as, as the first thing I would say is that the way conflict works in Iraq is cyclical, not linear, right? So you have times when the state begins to rebuild itself only to collapse. And we've seen that on multiple times. Civil War in 2005, 2006, 7. Then all of a sudden there was an era of good governance, 2007, 8, 9. Nuri al-Maliki, as Toby said, great. And then eventually his policies led to the emergence of the Islamic State. So you ha it's cyclical. Right? And right now we're at a point in Iraq where people are beginning to talk more positively. Right? And you see that in, in different op-eds being written uh, by, by others. I wouldn't say I'm included in this, but some, <laughs> some, some, think, some seem to say that I'm also included in this. What I would say is there is a lot of room, there's more room to be critical of what's going on. But there are just a few changes. One, as, as we've been saying, the next fault line of conflict that will happen in Iraq won't be between Sunni and Shia as we've seen in the past. We very much think that the citizen versus elite dynamic is much more of a problem moving forward. In the south, in Basra, Shi'i residents are attacking not Sunnis or Kurds, but their own Shi'i leaders, including Hashid offices, including Iranian consulates, right? That's a dynamic that has become, I'd say, more uh, prominent than, than, let's say, a few years ago. The second big sort of dynamic is linked to that is the fragmentation of the political blocks and the inability of these big political parties to get their, their members to tow a party line. And you've seen that in the Iraqi parliament with the, with, with the inability to really elect a president in a backroom deal, right? So business as usual would have been a backroom deal, but there was an inability because of dissenting MPs. And this is where the parliament becomes both a problem and a potential different sort of scenario. The problem, of course, is that it's difficult to get anything done, as the current prime minister has realized in trying to get his people passed. But the positive is, first of all, I mean, the, the parliament has often been considered weak because it is the product, it's a rubber stamp, right? But as the political parties have become weaker, you have a few dissenting parliamentarians who are beginning to say, wait a minute, we don't want this to happen, right? Now that, according to some, is a bit of a posit positive outlook. So I'm going to finish my thoughts by saying one thing, which is, well, one thing on that thought, which is in Iraq, the structure is still driven by the Mohassasa system. And the state is driven by the Mohassasa system. One of the projects we did for the CRP this year with Christine at AUIS was looking at the elections. And our base assumption was 
how is it different now that we have issue-based instead of identity-based politics? And when we came back with, actually, no, we don't, right? People are still voting along identity-based lines. The difference being, as Toby mentioned, people realize that the system is phony and, 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 and not real and a farce, so they don't want to participate in it, which leads to the final point, which is what comes next, right? Iraqis have realized that change cannot come through institutions. You can't vote for change. You can't get your local MP for change. So what happens next? One of, the re one of the things they're seeing is the protest movement. Now, an interesting thing has happened in the Iraqi protest movement, which hasn't happened in many other contexts. The elite themselves have taken on the discourse of the protest movement, right? Whereas, let's say, in Lebanon, for example, Beirut and Beirut Medinati was sidelined. In Iraq, the elite wanted to use the protest movement to bring down each other and due to fragmentations. Now, because of that, people like Qais al-Khaz'ali are saying that they are civic, they are a civic movement. And that's one of the more famous sort of things that came out of this, right? So the discourse is there, and they know they can no longer use sectarian rhetoric and sectarian identity-based arguments to gain constituencies. They know that they, to some extent they need to listen to the people, but to conclude on a, on a critical and realistic note, they face a very uphill battle, and the structure is still very strong, and that structure is the Muhasasa post-2003 structure that was thankfully given to Iraq by the U.S., its allies, and um, some uh, expats, leaders looking for power. Now with that, I'm going to open the floor up to uh, questions. Um, I think that was under 10 minutes. Um, please state your name and your affiliation uh, and who your question is directed to, or if it's to all, please state that. We'll begin, yes. I'll take a few at a time. Okay. My name is Hussein Al-Chalad. Uh, if you read the oil curse, there are books written on oil curse. Fundamentally, as long as there is oil curse, there is degradation of the role of a woman in any society that moves through the oil curse. Iraq is not, and therefore, we don't need to swing around between uh, pluses and minuses. The trend is negative all the way. Point number one. I tend to disagree with your model about the, what happened in Iraq. Iraq was full of uh, anticipation, liberation by the Americans. And in fact, prior to that, there has been uh, a lot of emphasis on what's called reconciliation. There is a group to do reconciliation because when there is a major uh, change in the social uh, environment, there are the winners and the losers. And when it's as a big an upset in getting rid of Saddam and his uh, supporters, there is obviously uh, reconciliation to take place, except what happened to the Americans when they walked in, it became colonization of mm. Iraq instead of li liberation. So the emphasis became the masses in Iraq became anti-U.S. presence, and one of the ways to actually reduce that effect is to create what we call religious divide rather than mm -hmm. ethnicity in a general can, can you and get that to the really question? Is the killer. That is the killer to the, to the social fabric rather than so-called mm -hmm. ethnicity clouded with mm -hmm. many things. And there is no resolve. In fact, the, the window of cooling down is because Trump says, I walk away from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And the, there is a drying in the swamps of uh, stooges in the uh, Gulf states that have money to finance all these ISIS, etc. that has reduced. Thank you. So it's the calming period, but that doesn't mean it's gone. Okay. You're right, there is no solution yet. 
that resolve the issue at the base. The military doesn't resolve it. Mm -hmm. The social fabrics rebuilding is not something Iraqis in the current environment can handle or familiar with. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sir. Yeah, was there, was, it seems like all the questions are in the front here. Please. Thanks. Franz Arshim, Exeter University and British Library. Um, thank you for your very interesting presentations. I was wondering if I could just link some of the the points you make in, in your introduction to the paper um, about, um, in a sense, the intersection with uh, real politics of gaining, managing, holding power um, with the sort of um, CRP's attempt to, to bring evidence based <coughs> uh, research, um, and link that also with what you're saying with the system which was created in Iraq after by the US and some advisors after the 2003 intervention that was partly based as a means to allow perhaps these elites to achieve what their, their goals. I was wondering if you could, um, so in a sense it was a, a, an attempt to, to, for those elites to, to, get, to undertake those bargains. I was wondering if you could say what external interventions might help uh, possibly constitutional change. Uh, what, what role could external advisors say? If you say some of these fundamental problems are the Mahasa system, mm -hmm. what could uh, sort of external interventions like your, you know, the DFID funders would be looking for to support possibly looking at any constitutional issues such as asymmetric federalism um, uh, or, or, or constitution, which in some ways reflects those kind of elite bargains? Mm. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'll go here and right here there's a. Oh, yeah, yeah, to you, he's, and then... Actually, I'm looking, but uh, I can't... Okay, there's one in the back. We can, sorry. I'm, I'm trying, but... We'll come back to you. I want to ask about gender. Ah, okay, no, I've, we have... Uh, we have there's one, all... It's going to be really difficult for the mic to get there, but... Thanks, I, thanks for helping me out. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, so I guess I wanted to. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Anne Marie. I'm a student here at LSE. Okay. Uh, I wanted to sort of get your opinion on particularly displaced populations that are remaining in camps, uh, with a specific lens on people with perceived or actual ISIL affiliation. Uh, sort of, we've seen the civic structures that have been created, the government return committees, which have largely been relatively ineffective. We've seen the government try to attempt returns to places of origin. I guess what my question is, is really what legal or civics or civil structures are really needed to promote integration or returns uh, of these IDPs, particularly the ones with perceived or actual ISIL affiliations who are predominantly women at this mm. point since their men are detained or mm. disappeared. Mm. Thank you. Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll come back. Uh, the questions that we have, and we'll go this way, and you can answer one or all that you think you want to answer briefly. One is on the oil curse and the role of women in the oil curse. Another question on reconciliation and how that's linked to the international. Another question, can external intervention bring about a constitutional change with a particular emphasis on asymmetrical federalism, which I want Toby to particularly uh, touch on. And, uh, and then the final question, which is a really important question, IDPs um, and, and, and sort of the role with ISIS and ISIS return, particularly for the gender question. We'll start with Thank you. I'm, I'm doing the oil 
first of all, the question led to the comment. Okay, then, then okay, you I'll, can I'll, just, I'll, I agree. I'll jump into the space and, uh, very quickly. I, I don't want to take much, I think there are lots of questions. Um, I, I visited, uh, I, I was in Iraq in, in June and visited a couple of camps in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, and talk to some of the officials. And I've been working, I've been visiting camps for the last couple of years and I've seen the transition. And return has always been a problematic issue. And it's very political uh, and very much dependent on the bargaining between the provinces, between the governors, between Baghdad and Erbil, um, uh, which many of the arrangements don't really prioritize the well being of the displaced communities and they, what they want. So re recently, for the last year, there is more talk of uh, voluntary returns. Um, but but not sure. I'm not sure how much it's implemented. I heard some of the camps were closed, and then people had no choice but to leave, or they were told if you don't return, you will lose your salary and your employment, and you will lose your pension, and etc. So they were forced to return. But when you talk to the officials, um, there are. So I think it's a complex picture, uh, and there are different implementations in place. What should be the best code of practice? Um, there are international guidelines on internal displacement. Um, internal displaced people are in a difficult position because there is no international agency that deals with them directly like the UNHCR deals with refugees. So they are, they are mainly the responsibility of the government, internal displaced people, which makes them vulnerable to arbitrary implementation, especially when it comes to return. Um, so those international guidelines set out really uh, useful uh, tools to, to address uh, the displaced people's situation, both in displacement, in settlement, in return, and displacement again, in camps and outside camps. Uh, but I haven't seen much em evidence of these guidelines being taken into account and implemented. Um, the other uh, solution is, is basically political deal, uh, and, and having a, going beyond the political rifts, but coming with a national action plan uh, with regards to displacement, such a large-scale issue in in Iraq and such a national uh, response plan is necessary, but it's lacking. Okay. Right, a, a couple of just to address the, um, the point about it's all America's fault. Yes, of course, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that deals with that. But I, I was living in Baghdad in, in 2003 as, as Bremer's caravan arrived, as it were, and I think it, it's really difficult to overestimate the rank, incompetence, incoherence, and arrogance of the American occupation. So then what becomes really interesting is to say, where on earth did they get these crazy ideas from? Part is around a consociationalism, and I think there's been a report published by Diffid recently that, 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 that celebrates elite bargains, much to my distress and compopulation, but um, given what we've seen in Iraq. But partly, I think, it's about who was advising the Americans. And, and Phoebe Mars done some great work on the ruling elite in 2003 and going forward were formally exiled, I can't blame for that obviously, but had a, a vision of Iraq, and Mahasa's vision, that bore little or no resemblance to the reality. And I think what we see, much like a laminated wheel or tire or something, is now that Mahasa's vision coming away from society. And finally, post-Civil War, the society is saying, as Renad was saying, no, this is not what we want. But coming to external interventions, I think I think the first point is to diagnose the problem. And we all love Brett McGurk, and, and as he rolls into Baghdad after every election and seeks to reimpose the Mahasasa system and the big tent on Iraqi politics, you just wonder, well, you know where he's been since 2003, but he doesn't seem to have been listening or learning. 
uh, and more. Anyway, I'll leave that point there. So then the second point is about, again, what the problem is. Now, if you look at the Constitution, the elite pact that I've just so uh, roundly condemned isn't in the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution is highly federal uh, um, and gives a, a great deal of power to the KRG. But, of course, the KRG, just to be equal opportunities, is an elite pact itself, equally corrupt and equally dysfunctional as Baghdad. So I'm not quite sure where the celebration of division in asymmetrical uh, federalism come from, or would sort that problem out. Now, going back to uh, the referendum, clearly, I think, in a surprisingly for a, a Kurdish vote, it was fairly free and fair and transparent, and the vast majority of the population voted for independence. I think it would be the terms of that. So I think that sits on the table as something that anyone in Baghdad has to deal with, and I think we have the most understanding of prime ministers uh, that Iraq has had in its post-2003 history. So it would be interesting to see how he mediates that constant and understandable demand for independence vis-a-vis how you would try and persuade the Kurdish population that they'd have more to offer by staying with Baghdad. Um, so I don't think asymmetrical federalism is, is, the, is the issue. And I actually don't think uh, opening up that Gordian knot of the Constitution again to what end when the problems are about the application of existing laws, the defense or the re-empowerment of, say, the Board of Supreme Audit or the, um, the Public Integrity Commission, which, you know, Board of Supreme Audit is the oldest running institution in the Iraqi state and at times in the past, not after 2003, but before, has actually caught criminals involved in corruption. So I think that would be the way to go forward, not kind of reinventing the wheel, making sure the wheel in the case of Iraqi institutions actually worked. Is that? Yeah, thanks. Um, just on, very quickly before I get to Jessica, because I, I just, I think Iraqis have realized as well that federalism, whatever that's been as a word, doesn't mean a more representative local government. I think Kurds and Shi'is and Sunnis have realized that Perhaps just because it's a local government doesn't mean that they can res re represent you more or even respond to your needs in terms of capability. So I think this is another lesson. Decentralization is being heavily pushed, trying to yeah. push power and resource down to the provincial level um, without any evidence that that will work or without any evidence that institutional capacity exists at the, 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 the provincial level to receive it. So I, I'm not against federal decentralization, uh, um, provincial decentralization on a geographical basis, but I think it's a hell of a gamble. Yeah. And on the second point of elite bargains, I think exactly right. There's an emphasis still by, by the international actors to support certain individuals who they think are, are saying the right things without a fundamental understanding whether those individuals have power on the ground or are able on the ground to, to you know, develop legitimacy. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if they speak English better, if they say democracy better, these are the kind of leaders that, that we're looking for. Gideon Rose, the editor of Foreign Affairs, has this really funny kind of party piece that he says that America's always looking for a magic Iraqi. Yeah. So Iraq, like any other state that's collapsed and has been rebuilt, is a really complex, difficult threat. But, you know, people in short cover, oh, he or, you know, possibly even she, not yeah. the, the, the American diplomat seems to be, not go for women, but in that sense, oh, yeah, they'll do it. They'll sort our problems out. Let's invest it. You know, and firstly, it was Jaffrey 
still beggars belief. Then it was Malachi, then Abadi, I was a bit guilty of that, and now it's Adel Abramadi. So from that point of view, the idea that one man can sort out a huge complex problem. Mm -hmm. And Iraqis are looking for this so-called independent technocrat. Yeah. One day the, the well, independent technocrat will, will emerge and, and become great. Yes, Jessica, sorry. Um, so I think where I certainly agree is that uh, my, my central point was that I, I think that the way that identity politics is being used by international players or regional players is essentially cyclical and it, it, the phase of um, sectarianism has, has, has peaked and at the moment is dwindling but there are no other alternatives, there's nothing else on the table so from my perspective the the way of rejecting it is when when citizens of in countries find those uh, rhetorics unconvincing but still from the leadership position there 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 are no alternatives being put forward um, but i think so certainly i accept that that iraqis did initially there was a window within which the 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 occupation, the, the coalition, the, the US-led forces were, were welcomed. It was a small window. And I think that when you look at the, and I have to confess, I'm looking at this from a lens of, I'm currently working on a project on um, the Pan-Arab media. Um, and specifically, I've been watching a lot of Al Jazeera dating back to 2003, 2004. And there is a specific story that emerges during that time. And we have to remember at that time there were up to 100 million people across the, the Middle East watching Al Jazeera. So you can't discount the, the, the story they spun. And it maybe was a story, but it was a powerful story of uh, initially pan-Arabism, pan pan-Islamism, anti-Westernism, and then it morphed into something different and, and a very sectarian uh, line emerged. So I think that, that, yes, there's definitely a difference between what's going on on the ground and the narratives, but what we have to try and understand is, is how they intersect. Um, I, I, I do accept your very astute points, though. Thank you. Well, I'll open it up again. There's a question over. Yeah, oh, yeah I'm coming to you. Right. Yes, I promise you. You have to identify who you want. To oh, with the red uh, jumper. I think it's red. Or is it a. Yeah, that's the one. For the communists. <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm Sophie. I'm an undergraduate LSE student. Uh, I was just wondering a lot of you touched on the ideas of there being uh, similar situations in different uh, regional countries surrounding. Iraq, and I was wondering whether you thought maybe there needed to be a bit more of a transnational investigation in terms of the ideologies and the processes that are happening across the region in order to uh, sort of facilitate reform in Iraq and for it to be stable as it's not an insular country and there's a lot of movement across borders. Mm -hmm. So my question really is uh, whether you think uh, a stable Iraq is achievable if it's in such an unstable region or whether you think it has to be yeah. a regional reform throughout in order to create stability in Iraq itself. Thanks. Yeah. There was a, a question here. If you can, maybe you can just pass the microphone down. In a ruler from the War Studies Department at King's College. So thank you very much for the informative report. Um, my question is also not that optimistic. So despite actually having witnessed these protests about issues and actually very poor governance performance, the report also showcased that the profiteers and actually architects of moral populism have also been very adaptable and, and keen on adopting like certain terms, co-opting certain groups. So what kind of reforms, what kind of changes have to be implemented on the ground to prevent this kind of 
as Ranat said, almost like mounting to the barricades revolutionary spirit from being once again hijacked by moral populism. And more importantly, who should implement them with this dramatic shortage of messianic technocrats coming parachuting from heaven? Thank you. Yeah, just since you're there, good, good spot. Well, uh, thank you very much. I'm Shivan. I'm a traveling scholar. Just completed my MSc in Middle East SOAS. Um, actually, two things that I wanted to uh, invite comments from uh, both Professor Toby and uh, Professor Zainab. One of them is the women's labor market participation in Iraq, including in Kurdistan region. I'm sure you've done some work on that. It's very low and actually perhaps the lowest in MENA. And, and we're talking about the, the resilience of patriarchy and when you have no alternatives um, for women in the economy. I mean, generally for people, aside from the state-led economy or dominance on economy. Second one is the, as you said, that you were focusing on the issue-based politics that people might have finally uh, decided to vote on other things than identity, but then the outcome proved otherwise. I mean, when I look at like, the trajectories of Kurdistan, like in, in the good times, in the first decade of the golden decade of uh, KRG, we had actually um, political parties or mobilizations on things that people did not have, which is basically they had a, a sustained income, but they asked for more, which is freedoms and liberties and, and things like that. But now, during the bad economic years, basically whatever uh, resources left are in the hands of the resilient dominant political parties. So where do they, basically the economy, the mm. what are your comments on that, or maybe Professor mm. Toby? And can, can we bring it down to uh, yeah. be very patient. Yeah, thank you so much. It, you helped me a lot. Oh, God, this is no pressure then. So I, I, I wanted to pick up on the elite bargains then. I'm, sorry, I'm Mark Siegel. I've recently joined the stabilization unit in DFID, which is responsible for that elite bargains research. So I know, it's I, your paper. I've it's not mine, <laughs> but I've read it, and I was quite impressed, actually, because what, what I like about it Okay, so the theory would say that the elite bargains is essential in order to reduce violence. But actually, and, and the failure that we saw in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan and various other places originally was a failure to engage the elites with power in political processes such that they had a stake in maintaining some level of stability. And that then creates the window, the opportunity for doing the institutional development and then increasing other forms of inclusion. Okay. Now, the really important point is elite bargains are a start, not an end, and how do you move on? So I guess you've, you've already said that, that actually the, the interesting thing is the degree to which the, 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 the sort of uh, arguments now has shifted towards citizens against elites, and that is a fantastic opportunity, as I see, to actually create support, engage movements uh, which can promote, um, uh, you know, real vertical inclusion. Um, God knows how you do it. So if the panel have got any ideas about how you do it, but as an opportunity, as a moment, that's surely quite exciting. I also wanted to know if that could also be linked to the points about um, gender um, uh, uh, and the point about employment of women and the point about violence against women. Um, uh, I've, I've got a little pet theory about violence against women, t uh, action on violence against women being an entry point for a more inclusive society um, uh, and whether that would help 
tackle patriarchy and, um, and create some openings for this as well. But any comments on that would be Thank great. you. Yes, we'll return back and we'll begin this time with Jessica and then go this way. So okay. uh, just a few minutes because I think there are more questions out there. So but sure, yeah, okay. respond to Thank what Thank you, you so like. much for your question. And I, this is a question that um, I have spent far too long thinking about uh, the transnational um, nature of the, of the most of the issues that affect Iraq. And um, so and, and obvious examples are, the, are now the refugee issue, the, the Kurdish issue, the Salafi Jihadi issue. And, and yes, I totally agree. The solutions are transnational, but the problem is how to approach them that way in, in the bounds that we, uh, and we're kind of stuck on this balance of power rhetoric of, of talking about, uh, and it, it kind of reinforces the idea that, that the state's regimes have the final say. And that is the way that we've kind of described. And I've just tell, told you about the way that regimes have been for promoting these different sectarian rhetorics. But in reality, uh, the buck doesn't stop with them. And, and it is the problems uh, go right through. And a lot of the solutions, therefore, have to be approached not through the state regimes, and, but at a different level. But we have no access, like in a lot of cases. And I, I mean, I know, so I think, that Diffid, part of Diffid's approach towards the Middle East is it's shifted and it now categorizes the Middle East as a, as a fragile region. And that in some ways suggests that it recognizes that there are, structural, there are structural issues behind the problems that don't amount to taking a single solution. But then you get into this endless uh, drivers that become, uh, that become symptoms, that become drivers and the only practical means that we have at the moment in most of the states we're working with is to work through the governments. So I, I think there are practical issues attached to, to taking transnational so solutions. Thanks. Toby? Yeah, I guess two points. I, I, when I read that stabilization report, I just finally depressed. Well, the examiner's here. About 15 years ago, I wrote my PhD, 20, probably longer, on how the wrong elites were picked in the aftermath of the First World War in Iraq, and that led to massive destabilization, ultimately, the, whatever we call 58, the, the revolution or the coup. And then I thought, all right, so what, who were the elites in 2003 that, that we, whoever we, should have had the wit to pick? Well, of course, they were the people that we, and I'm using they actually, they were the people that the, the US-led coalition were deposing of power. And then in that absolute watershed where, where the, the, you had a group of new elites solidifying, and the, the dominant elites that did solidify were the ones that the US empowered uh, under a, a, an ideological veil of ignorance, to put it, that, that they couldn't see what, so, so the idea that somehow that there were another real set of elites that we, whoever we were, could have empowered, I think is simply un empirically unsustainable. The second point is then, are we, we, and this is a classic transition literature, we empower the elites, and then while we're making these fat cats rich under a political bar, under the political marketplace and moral populism, somehow underneath we'll scurry around and rebuild institutions. Of course, those elites, by their very nature, as we see, and we'll get to 2015 in a minute, are working incredibly hard, as they are now, this very evening in Baghdad, to make sure that those institutions won't be rebuilt because they're a direct threat. So the very vagabonds, carpetbaggers, and thieves that we empowered in 2003 are working incredibly hard to make sure that the institutions won't grow under Adel Abramadi and Baham So from, from that's why that 
report depressively to 2015, which is exact. So you have in 2015, as documented by uh, some wonderful work that, uh, uh, that the centre that Renata was helping run in, in, in Beirut and its recession in Baghdad, you have this upswell of youthful anger, comparable broadly to the Arab Spring. And the, the, the thousands of people put their lives at risk and moved towards Baghdad saying, God, enough is enough. The, let's kick these people out. And the, the political movement that they gave birth to, uh, to Qadam around the Iraqi Communist Party was getting hammered by the powers that be, these ruling elites empowered by the invasion, who were using a huge amount of violence, as the KDP and the PUK do when they're faced with popular demonstrations in the north as well. And at that stage, the Iraqi Communist Party had a choice. I always say about the Iraqi Communist Party that I love dearly, make the wrong decision at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, and they did for the right reasons, so I knew there was a wrong, wrong right. There are a few communists in the room. And, and they did it again, and we know comrades with inside the uh, Iraqi Communist Party disputed this. They aligned with Muqtada al-Sada because he gave them coercive protection, but he co-opted that movement. How a man, a key player in the civil war, and a, a, a very skilled pur purveyor of moral populism could somehow protect a civil society movement uh, and the Communist Party and bring them into power. I'm still trying to work out, but I suspect the Communist Party have now worked out that he's not. So from that point of view, it's, this time it was a short learning curve. So 2015, I think, was a moment of, of opportunity, and a, but a moment for very understandable reasons that the those who were trying to direct that dropped the ball. It's a very scary and dangerous thing. What could possibly take over from that? Well, this town, and especially Washington, but generally a, a crammed full of people and organizations that are very good at party support, where a photocopier, or in this case an, an internet connection, a computer, would be much more powerful in getting and organizing and in, in, in training civil society activists than... What, what has been poured into Iraq up until now. So from, so from that point of view, I'm, I'm still optimistic. I still think, and I, the, the, the ruling elite is still petrified because they know just beyond those high concrete walls that our love of is claiming to pull down is a, a really justifiably very angry population. As Renad was saying, my great worry is that if that anger, motivation, energy dissipates, it'll dissipate. The danger is in a highly armed society. It'll dissipate into low-level fractured violence, which again will be easy enough for the, uh, for the ruling elite to clear up, but it'll mean more dead people who have died for idealistic reasons. Um, I, there are two questions. Violence against women is an entry point for transforming the society and an employment. Um, I I don't fully disagree with you, but I think that's not the, that's a very small proportion of the solution. Uh, and violence against women is not, it's, a, it's not a side issue. It's, uh, it's an outcome. It's a symptom of existing patriarchal inequalities and structures in place. So it, there, is, there has been work on violence against women in Iraq for decades. It hasn't gone down. And local groups are doing much more effective work than international community on, on this issue. Their pro programs and practices are much more effective, but still it's there. So how do you, it's not, I don't think it's an entry point. I think we are missing the big picture. We need to change our framing. We need to change our thinking about the issue. And actually, it's not that difficult. We just need to think creatively. How do we tackle patriarchy directly? How do we develop policies and action plans to implement them? How can we allocate more money for those types of activities? How do we engage with men 
the patriarchy is also, it's not only women's issues, it's also men's issues, uh, whether they are hyper-masculine or not. Uh, also LGBTQI community in Iraq. Um, international community doesn't really discuss them or there aren't many civil society organizations addressing them and they suffer from the hyper-masculinities and patriarchal structures. So we have to have a more holistic understanding. Violence against women is, I don't think it's, it's the way to go forward. It, I think the work on it should continue, definitely, but that's not the answer to transform societies. And the same problem with the way we approach the resilience policies is an international framework. We talk about transforming individuals and communities and think that society will change from it. This bottom-up understanding of transforming the society or focusing on issues and then transforming the society, this ripple effect. I don't, uh, I have a lot of reasons to not agree with that theory of change. Uh, and most of those reasons are based on evidentiary work conducted by several researchers and also my observations over the last five years in Iraq. Um, involvement in the labor market. I think Kurdistan has one of the lowest levels of employment um, for women uh, in the Middle East. Uh, in the Middle East, it's generally low. I think Turkey performs well, then Kuwait, and, and then it goes down. Iraq isn't doing very well either. There are several reasons for it. I think um, one of the, you know, the most simple response to that is the, in the context of conflict, it's hard. Economy is, is getting smaller, the services are, um, and, and the public policies and public institutions are not being uh, not functioning very well and the job market is getting smaller. So whenever you look at the transformation of domestic um, division of labor in the house um, and if both partners are working, for instance, because of lack of jobs, um, men would carry on working and women would give up their jobs. Uh, so it's the lack of jobs and lack of opportunities is one reason. When you look at the rates of illiteracy uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan and Iraq, it has significantly gone down in the last 20 years because of conflict. So that's, you know, lack of unemployment is another reason. So when families have the option of sending their kids to school, boys go to school. Also issues with the security. Uh, there are lots of girls and, and women who, are, who want to work, who want to go to school, especially among the refugees uh, coming from Syria. Uh, but the camps are away from the places where they can carry out work. There's no safe transport or transport is expensive. Um, and it's not acceptable for a woman to just uh, take a public transport sometimes. So they have to have company or another woman or, or a man. So um, I think just like very, from very practical things to wider long-term problems, that's the outcome. Thank you. So I think we have to finish <coughs> at eight. So, and we have five minutes. So we're gonna do a rapid round of very quick uh, questions, um, and and we're probably going to go over eight. Just full disclosure, sorry. Gillian uh, Dare, Foundation for Relief and Reconciliation in the Middle East, and formerly Foreign Office. I just want to explore a little bit more this whole business of identity politics, because it seems to me that we've actually got a narrowing of identities in Iraq, which is also making change of norms and attitudes different. Mm. Iraq was one of the most pluralist societies in the Middle East at one point, but it isn't now partly reflecting what's happening across the wider range of the Middle East. And I think that is actually narrowing down the opportunity to change things like gender norms and standards on the whole. Yeah. And I'd be interested in your view. And all the way to the back, I'm going by whoever raises their hand highest wins. wins. <laughs> Who is that? 
Um, he's, it's, it's Hi there. Um, my name is Will Johnson. I work at Active Strategy. Um, I just wondered, sort of speaking to your point, Renard, about the sort of fracturing of the political space at the state level, in the sense we talk about the fracturing of Shia blocs um, going forward, and also more at the local level when we the protests we've seen in Basra. Um, I wondered what you thought the future holds for the PMF, given we have this fracturing political landscape at, at government level, and um, we haven't really touched on demobilization and PMF okay. um, during this talk, but thank yeah. you. So I've been told we actually have to finish at 8, and that leaves one minute for, for the answers to all these questions. So sadly, uh, if you have other questions, perhaps offline, but technology rules us, and we have to finish at 8. So we'll begin with Zainab, and one minute, please, for sort of concluding thoughts. I, I agree with you. <laughs> that was... Nobi, <laughs> can you agree? And can yeah, I, I, the fracturing of the blocks is a really interesting point. And then if you look into Parliament and... The, the governing elite, you then ask, where does power lie? Well, at the moment, it lies with Sadr, I think, and with uh, Hadi al-Amri. And, and Amri has that, I think it's Renaz Wert that said there's 50, 47 or 52 different hashed groups. Now, what worries me about the way that the hashed have been integrated into the state, or the way that the state has been integrated into the hashed, depending, means that that money has solidified the coherence of that, those fractured groups because they turn up for paychecks and stuff. So it's a very astute move. And, of course, Al-Amri has that. And if, uh, if the current candidate for Minister of Interior gets the job, that, that'll lock it in. So you're locking in and providing coercive militia coherence where the blocks are fracturing. But I do think, although the blocks are fractured, you can point to power centers of power still, sort of being one of them and removing the other. Yes. I also agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. You have, it's, it's, we have one minute. There's no right. way to no, I will, So I'll, I'll, we, I'll add have... to that, that. I think that, yeah, I, I'm unsure about how I feel about the terminology weak and fragile states because I'm aware that they're very normatively laden. But I think that you, we can certainly say about Iraq that it has... Um, due to the governance structures, the weak governance structures at present, it's unable to um, resist so, some of the, the very powerful uh, narratives and rhetorics that are coming from um, outside in the region. And so, yes, I think there is definitely a narrowing of, of identity politics. Thank you. Um, very clearly, uh, this research program uh, is an important one, and hopefully these kind of dis debates and discussions can continue moving forward at the LSE. Um, and so thank you very much to Jessica, Zainab, and Toby, and, and to everybody for asking the questions. Thank you.